Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I know you're expecting to turn to John chapter 11, but uh, let's turn to John chapter 12. We'll be back in John chapter 11 next week. We kind of kind of bounce back and forth here. You know, I was talking to Mike here yesterday when he was taking his pictures, and I was telling him, you know, I, I have, in my years going around the world 44 times in every place I've been, I, I preach just about everywhere there is to preach. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I've, I could write a book on some of the preaching experiences I had. I one time actually out in Seattle, Washington, I preached for a convention of midgets. It was the Christian Midget Association. I think I was the shortest guy they could find that could preach the Bible. And uh, it was an amazing experience. I got a standing ovation and didn't even know it till somebody told me that uh, <laughs> what was going on. But I said, oh, I preached everywhere, and this is, without a doubt, the greatest place to preach. I was telling Mike yesterday, the acoustics here, back in the day when they built this, back in the middle 1800s, they didn't have the sound systems that we have. So they built the buildings to be acoustically designed for preaching and, and uh, singing. And boy, I'll tell you, that's the way it is here. And I really enjoy just getting up here and spending time with you in the Word of God and just really enjoying all that uh, we're going to do today in the Word of God. So last week we were in John chapter 11, and we started our study on the inspirational, on the practical side of, of this story. Up to that point, we've been looking at it deals with prophetically and all the great doctrinal aspects, but we looked at Martha, and I told you uh, this family and how they will represent the different kinds of Christians you find today in Christianity, in inspirationally, in a practical way. And you'll remember that I laid out last week around the two key doctrines in the Bible uh, for our really understanding how God works in our life. And of course, the one was God's plan for our life, which is different for everybody in this room. And then for God's will for your life, which is the same for everybody in this room, and that is to be more like Christ every day. And how through those two, when properly in place, God will develop in our lives all that we need to do whatever work God has called us to do. And, you know, developing us for his perfect work. And going through, as we saw last week, our trials, our tribulations, the catastrophes in life that we have to face by learning patience and then through that experience and then the hope of the principles of the Word of God. And I showed you that those tough times or times of tragedy, that's when God will be behind the scenes. Most of God's people can never see this. They're so caught up with all the emotion of what they're going through that they really cannot see God operating behind the scenes uh, through the circumstances to get the honor and glory out of it. And uh, God just using the natural cycle of life and what comes along with that. And how I showed you last week in James chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it tells us that the trying of our faith is what works and brings patience in our lives. And it's through these trials that patience will, the Bible says, will have her perfect work. It'll develop us to a point. In Romans chapter 5, verse 3 when patience does that perfect work, it will result in experience. You learn not only what you're going through and why, but why God is doing it, and you learn more about the Lord and what He's doing and how He does what He does. 
and then hope. The fact that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And you learn those things as you go through the things of life. And we looked at Martha, uh, who has (laughs) none of these things in her life. And we looked at how that she is a picture of so many of God's people today who they'll never allow God to develop them. They'll, they'll never will make Jesus Christ Lord of their life. Uh, they'll always want to be the main chandelier like Martha. And old Mel Sabaka, my father in the Lord, used to say that everybody today wants to be the main chandelier in the ballroom, but nobody wants to be the light bulb on the back porch. Martha wants to be that main chandelier. She wants everybody to see what she's doing. And she's totally unteachable because she thinks, as we saw last week, she knows everything. She is so busy doing that she has no time to build her relationship with Christ. Much like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the New Testament time, we're told in Luke chapter 11, verse 43, that Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the markets. They love to be seen out there doing everything. Matthew 23, 5 says that all their works they do is to be seen of men. That's Martha. Unfortunately, that's so many of God's people. And she loves to be seen uh, by everybody as she is so cumbered about, as we saw last week, with much serving. But nothing on the inside. It's all on the outside. It's all show. Martha is just, as we say, going through the motions. She is a picture of so many of God's people today uh, who never, never, never really fulfill God's plan uh, in their life. They, They just never see God and understand God the way he wants to use them. You know... I'm sure that most of your, you husbands last week, after you left church, on the way home or maybe in the privacy of your kitchen or your home someplace, your wife asked you if you thought she was a Mary or if she was a Martha. And it's times like these <laughs> where you learn to use and put together Two fundamental biblical principles that will always keep you in good favor. Now, if you messed it up last week, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. (laughs) But I'm sure that many of the women in your life ask you, darling, am I a Martha or do you think I'm a Mary? It's like sometimes they'll say to you, does this dress make me look fat? And here's where you learn to use your Bible by applying two principles where Proverbs chapter 12 verse 22 says clearly that lying is an abomination in the sight of God. (laughs) But Psalms 46 1 says, but a very present help in a time of trouble. (laughs) And you, you, you try to do the best you can. Now I want to begin today to look at her sister Mary. And this also will be an incredible study, helping you put your Bible together. You know, I, I've been in this business for a long time, and I've dealt with many, many, many parents on many, many, many different situations. And I really believe uh, that most parents want the best for their kids. 
I really do. Now, I know many times it doesn't turn out that way, and it doesn't work for your good. But I think that most parents want the best for their kids. They may make bad choices in doing it, but I think the underlying motive is they want the best for them. I, I've seen, oh, in my years, I've seen some horrific <laughs> examples of parents. Oh, moms and dads, I am not kidding you. I've seen mothers who literally would abandon their kids for some guy. That they just would leave those kids in the most vulnerable time in their life to go be with some idiot someplace, you know, that, uh, and just, just cared nothing about their kids. Their whole world was around what they wanted, and the kids obviously will pay the price for it. I, I've seen dads, you know, destroy their own kids. I mean, I've seen them beat them. I've seen them verbally abuse them. I've seen them, all those young kids' lives where they would tell them how stupid they are, how ugly they are, how they'll never amount to anything. I've seen them abuse them verbally. I've seen them abuse them physically. I've even, God forbid, seen them molest their own children sexually. But that will be a very small number in the overall parenting that I have been involved with. You're always going to have dirtbag parents who care nothing about their kids that will destroy them. I think, honestly, most parents really want the best for their children, even though many times it doesn't work out that way. I've told you for years and years and years that the best child training book wasn't written by Dr. Seuss or Dr. Spock, but it was written by God. That's another message. And I say this because for many of you, I, I'm more than just your pastor. If I can just speak to you heart to heart for a moment. I'm, to some of you, many of you, maybe most of you, I am more than just your pastor. You look at me. Like, I looked at Mel Sabaka in my life who helped me and brought me along after my dad died and I had nobody. And, uh, you know, he was my father in the Lord. And to many of you, I am your spiritual father, like Paul and Timothy. You know, some of you, your dads were unsaved, and they were good guys, uh, they were, but they were unsaved and they didn't care really anything spiritual for you. And your whole family maybe were that situation. But God cared enough about you to bring you here. And you found people here in this family that love you. And to many of you, you know, I make up that spiritual father. And I must tell you, it's a privilege for me to be able to do that. And I know that some of you had parents, fathers, who were, maybe were saved, but they're just idiots. I mean, they're absolutely just worthless as far as any spiritual insight. And you had to get away from it to even get to the place where somebody could take you and teach you the Word of God. And, you know, that was Timothy's case. It looks like his mom was saved, but his dad probably was not. And we find ourselves, I found myself in that situation where when I lost my dad, who was saved, and my mom remarried to a nice guy. But I was left by myself, and it, God used somebody in my life to keep me. God knows where I would be today if it wasn't for that. And, you know, and so I count that as a real privilege. And I say that to tell you this. 
I am certainly not the best preacher you'll ever hear. And nor, I do know, nor do I know the Bible as good as some people do. But I'm going to tell you right now, nobody on this earth will work harder to make you all God wants you to be than I will. And everything I do, I do it for one reason. It's you. To make you better. To help develop you. To help you live by the principles of the Word of God. To understand them. But even more important, to apply them. Now, and and to, 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 to get you to see all that God has for you the way God sees it. Now, I know, I know in, a, in this world that is not going to happen, but that is still my goal. God knows that everybody is not going to get saved, but he died for them anyhow. And my job for you is to try to make you better. To get you to the place where God can really use you. And for you not to waste your life. Now, I know. I'm old school. I was raised in a generation of preachers that you don't find today. They were hard. They were tough. But boy, I'll tell you what. They love the book. And uh, I look at them as the old breed. And I, I, I think to myself, you know what? Those are the guys who laid the foundation in my life that I could lay that same foundation in your life. That you might be able to fulfill being called according to his purpose, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. My job is to give you the vision of who you really are and who you need to be then help you get there. We're all living in some really tough times. Our country and this whole world is on fire and fast burning to the ground. There isn't anywhere that you look in this world and in our country that there isn't some unbelievable catastrophe going on. We sit here this morning and we're on the verge of World War III in the Ukraine. There'll be guys in this city who will lose their jobs or be laid off next week because of a trucker strike up on the Canadian border. And I'm not getting into whether they're right or they're wrong. I, I, it, that's not my point. My point is we're in a mess in this country. It's in a terrible situation. You know, I was reading this last week about the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire has always fascinated me in history. And I, I, I was reading that in 64 AD, now this is still in the time of the Bible, that Rome uh, uh, burned for six days. Nero was the emperor during that period of time. And during those six days, over 90% of the city of Rome was burnt to the ground. Thousands died. Tens of thousands were made homeless. And as I listened, read that story, it was, it was said that during while Rome burned, Nero was playing his fiddle. In fact, the expression is that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Now, I don't know if they even had fiddles back then. What do you think, Donnie? You think they did? I don't know. But I tell you this, the point is very well made. 
Because while Rome burned to the ground, he was enjoying, he wasn't even there. He was in his villa enjoying life, enjoying everything while the city that he was supposed to take care of was burning to the ground. He was enjoying everything and he was incapable of helping alleviate the suffering of his own people of what they were going through. And I thought to myself, <laughs> wow, history does repeat itself. We have so many issues today. And nobody really cares. Nobody wants to investigate. Nobody wants to do anything. Everybody just wants to get what they want politically, and we pay the price for it. I feel, I feel like this country is like the great ship in 1912, the Titanic. And they were having church services here in 1912, Mike, and while the Titanic sunk. I just kid me. And, you know, the Titanic hit an iceberg. And the Titanic was a ship that was... It sank in a couple of hours. And I, I look at this country like we have rammed into an iceberg and we're sinking so fast by the stern. And what the captain of this ship and all of the leaders of the ship are doing, they're rearranging the deck chairs for the next event. Which, by the way, will be held underwater. Nobody cares. And many of God's people, I get it. I understand it. This is not a criticism. Many of God's people, I'm telling you, they feel like it's just all they can do is to survive. People are scared. People are afraid. I am neither scared nor afraid, but God's people are today. Many of them are lost in a fog of confusion. We can all look back just two short years ago. Our life all changed. I mean, our life changed drastically, not only in our families and in our city and in our state or in the country, but around the world. COVID-19 hit. It changed everything in the world. It changed everything in America. It's amazing to me it just further, it became a political issue for somebody's political gain. And all that it did was to divide a country farther that was already divided. It was amazing to me from a Christian standpoint. You see, so many of God's people who I thought really had the Bible down. I thought that they really had a handle on the word of God just by the way they talked that any situation in life was going to be something that they could deal with. And I, I must tell you, I was, I was saddened, I was shocked, and I was disappointed. There's so many of God's people. They basically changed religions. They went from Bible Christianity to covertism. A system by where Bible Christianity is built on the principles, covertism is built on the science, which the Bible says is falsely so-called. And here we are two years later. <laughs> Science is so confusing today, nobody even knows what they're talking about. And I get it. People want to survive. 
You want your families to survive. You want your kid to survive. You want your grandparents to survive. Everybody in the midst of what we're going through just want to survive. Now, I understand that, but I want you to be crystal clear on something that I'm going to say to you. I'm not interested in just helping you to survive. I want you in the midst of everything that's going on around us, not only to survive, I want us to thrive. I want us to keep going. I want you to keep growing. I want us to let God, through all of this, develop us. I want him to be able to get the honor and glory out of whatever that we go through, whether it is what we have been going through, what's going on around us now, or what's coming in the future. And I don't only just want to teach you how to survive and thrive, but I want God, to through all of that, to develop a passion in us. We need to be passionate about some things. When there's no passion involved, then it really doesn't make any difference. People won't come to church. They don't get involved in anything because there's no passion for it. We'll quit reading our Bible because we lose the passion for it. A passion for His Word. And to live and over above everything that comes our way. And the only platform for that is that God will not only teach you to survive, but he will teach you to thrive. And through that, he'll give you passion. I was driving someplace the other day, and I'm not a country western fan, but when your radio is broken, it only gets one station, you got to take what you get. And uh, of all the country western songs that I don't care about, there's one that I really love. Bubba's out there, Donnie's back here. Marty Robbins, El Paso. Remember that, Bubba? Donnie? Hey, you boys had to learn that and sing it. That's a great song. Now, he did that back in the 60s, I think. Maybe late 50s, I don't know. When he came out with it, it went four and a half minutes. And now the average song only goes two minutes. And everybody said it'll flop because it's way too long. It was the success of successes. And to this day, anybody knows Marty Robbins' song on El Paso. And it was a story about a cowboy that found a Mexican gal named Katrina. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican gal. That's how it went. <laughs> he goes down there and he falls in love. She's swishing around, you know, as they do. With her, and he falls in love with her. Well, another cowboy comes in. Mm. He likes Katrina. And this Marty's guy, he says, he, he gets offended. So the guy drops his hand down to his gun and he outdraws the guy and shoots him and kills him. Over a bimbo. <laughs> happens all the time, man. It happens all the time. So, I'm listening to this song. And I never really thought about it this way. But I was getting ready to preach this today. Passion. And I thought to myself, boy, this is it. So, he gets on his horse. Runs out of town. Gets out. And they don't catch him. 
So he's out there all by himself, but his heart's back in El Paso. He can't stop thinking about Katrina, his Mexican gal. And the song goes on, and he says, Maybe tomorrow a bullet may find me. Tonight nothing's worse than this pain in my heart. Da-da-da. So he goes back down to El Paso. He braved everything for this gal. Why? Because he had passion. He said, maybe tomorrow a bullet may find me, but tonight, <laughs> nothing's worse than this pain in my heart. And so down he goes. And so he's down there, and he starts, and they're waiting for him. I must have heard the song. <laughs> they're waiting for him. And so he sees them, and he says, Riding and shooting, I can't let them get me. I must get to Karina's back door. And then he comes down and he says, I see the white puff of smoke from the rifle. I feel the bullet go deep in my chest. You shoot him. He must make it, falls off the horse, and he says he looks up and there's Karina kissing his face, and then he ends the song like this. One little kiss and Karina, goodbye. Now, that's passion. That's passion. Here's a guy who got away, has such passion for this lady, <laughs> that he risked death, goes back, and dies. And I listened to that, and I thought to myself, you know what? If God's people could just get one ounce of that passion, if they could come in their life where they're willing to go through anything, to get to that door where they could fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, man. And as God does his perfect work in you and me, yes, you will survive, and you will thrive, and you'll develop passion, and then God will take you and me to the next level, and through all that, he'll develop compassion, love for others. Four levels. You're to survive, but you're to thrive. You're to learn passion, but then God will teach you compassion. This is what our story in John chapter 11 is all about. It's about a woman with passion in a midst of other people who have no passion. And it's an incredible thing. Understanding that what we go through, our testimony of God's grace and Romans chapter 14, verse 7 says, let's face it, in the midst of whatever we're going through, people are watching. No man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. Wherever you go, whatever you do, wherever you work, whoever you hang out with, if they know you're a Christian, they're watching. That in the midst of any tragedy or trial, God will get the honor and the glory out of it all. And we will all face and go through just like Mary and Martha, some tough times. So through any tragedy or pandemic or crisis, we can be used to God to reach others. It's a proven fact. I've witnessed this many times in my own ministry down through the last 50-some years. It's a, it's a true fact that when a disaster takes place, when the norm is in upheaval, when everything begins to go sideways and people's daily routines are fractured, busted, broken, 
There's always a tendency for them to look toward God and a great opportunity for evangelism. I go back to the Titanic in 1912. You know, the Titanic was built during what we call the Industrial Age. And uh, it was, she was the greatest ship that ever had been built. In fact, it was said that she was a ship that even God himself could not sink. And on her maiden voyage, I guess God took an interest in that. <laughs> and it showed us how that the biggest, greatest ship that could ever be built could just be sunk by a big ice cube that God would probably put in his glass of iced tea up in heaven. Down she went. You know what it did? 1,500 people died in the Titanic. I watched a documentary a couple of weeks ago named The Aftermath of the Titanic, which focused on the ships that went out to recover the bodies. Incredible. 1,500 people. Never found most of them. 600 survived. I think they brought in about five or 600. rest of them they never found. But you know what it did? It rocked this world so much that a great revival broke out. And when man came up with something that he said God couldn't sink and God sunk it, and 1,500 people lost their lives, back in that day, that was an incredible thing. And a great revival broke out. Many, many people got saved. So today, we're going to look at Mary. And my goal for all of you will be for you to be a Mary and not a Martha. Now to do this today, as I said already, we will need to jump into chapter 12 for a minute. And then next week we'll be back because the two chapters go together, so we got to get in here. But let's read chapter 12 today, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was which had been dead. He's alive now. This is after God brought him back to life. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikered, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas is a chariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but that he was a thief and had the bag, and bear that was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my bearing, hath she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me you not, uh, have not always. Now, Father, we ask you to bless us today to help us to see and understand. These are really good people. These are my people. And I love each and every one of them, and I only want the best for them. I know that won't work out for all of them, but that's beside the point. I want them to be everything, to have everything, to see everything, to experience everything that you have for them. Help me today to have the passion, and yet the compassion, to lay out the Word of God to these dear folks. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now... There will be some added information here to our character cast here as from an inspirational standpoint. I want you to notice verse 2. First of all, you're going to learn some things today. There's a supper here, and it's connected with a table. Now, you should already know that that is a picture in the Bible of our fellowship with God around His Word. And then I want you to look at our three people. 
built around the table of fellowship, building around the, the, the supper, and Martha is serving, Lazarus is sitting, and Mary is worshiping. Now, that's a great picture of God's people today. Some people actually serve God. Some people do nothing, and they're just sitting, and there's some that worship. And I'm telling you, you need to look deep inside yourself today. I can't do that for you. I can just give you the truth of the Word of God, and hopefully you're somewhat in tune with the Holy Spirit of God that you can look down inside you and find yourself in all of this today. Now, verse 2, the table here, as I said, will represent a picture of our fellowship with Him in the Word of God. You'll find that back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, that you have the church of the open door and the church of the closed door. You know all about that. But he says in Revelation 3.20 that if a church would open up the door, that he would come in and sup with them. Supper. Fellowship. And of course, you know, uh, back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 25, down around verse 33, you have the table of shewbread. And that table of shewbread is a picture of God's table with the Word of God on it. The showbread, shewbread, was made fresh every morning. There was 12 loaves of it. Put one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six on a table. Showing you that on the table of God's fellowship, there'd be a book of bread, the bread of life, with 66 books in it. See how it works? And then Psalms 25, verses 1 through 6 says that... Uh, uh, and he says, he, he prepares a table for me in the midst of mine enemies. That's fellowship. And what a great illustration of this, of, of our, our learning and our worship and learning of the Word of God. Remember Luke chapter 10, verse 39, a couple of weeks ago, Mary sat at his feet, worshipped him and heard the Word of God. Now, I'll take all that and boil it down for you for this. You'll never learn the Word of God just sitting around that table. You'll never learn the Word of God and get anything from God by out there busy doing things. If you're ever going to learn the Word of God, you're going to have to get it through worship. You're going to have to get Jesus sitting at the table, and you're not sitting at the table, but you're sitting at His feet, and you're learning from Him His feet at the table through worship. Now, what follows here, and this is John 4, 24, that we worship God in spirit and truth. Our human spirit, His truth, the Word of God. And what follows here will be a picture of what my work, my relationship, my ministry should be based on the anointing of His feet with precious ointment, which is very costly. Now, this will open up even more studies to look at. And what you're going to see today is another good example. How that when you get into one story of the Bible, it just keeps unfolding itself into different stories and different studies. Now, let me point out this to you Bible students. She anoints his feet with a precious ointment. The Lord gets his feet anointed two times in the Gospels. The first one will be here, and then you'll find the same exact account in Mark 14 and again in Matthew chapter 26 by Mary. And then the second place will be found in Luke chapter 7, verse 37, and the Bible says there it's by an unknown woman. 
Now, you were taught by guys who really don't care much about the Bible or don't study the Bible very much that, that uh, they try to make all these accounts the same. But they're not, if you have the trained eye. You will notice that these two places where he gets his feet anointed will mark the beginning and the end of his public ministry. In Luke chapter 7, verse 37, this will take place at the start of his public ministry. And in John chapter 12, where we're at today, Matthew chapter 20, same one, and Mark chapter 14, same account, will take place at the end, in the final weeks of his ministry. You'll note in 12.1, it's the fourth Passover, and uh, it's right before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's the week before he's crucified in 12.13. So one represents the beginning when he started his ministry, and one represents the finalization of his ministry. And of course, this will be a great picture of the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he's called the Lord's anointed. So they're anointing his feet. Now, the next thing you should know. Here's another study unfolding here. Feet in the Bible. Feet in the Bible will be an incredible study. Because there's two times in your Bible where somebody is told to take their shoes off their feet that the ground they're standing on is holy. One of them is in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. That'll be Moses. The other one is in Joshua chapter 5. That'll be Joshua. And there's a reason why you have those two places. One is at Mount Sinai. The other one is at the Mount of Olives. Now what you have by his feet... Take your shoes off because the ground you're standing on is holy will be a picture of the route of the second coming of Christ, which starts at Sinai and then goes down the King's Highway, up through Paran and all those places and winds up at the Mount of Olives on the other side of Jordan. Now you'll find in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, How beautiful are the feet with shoes. O prince's daughter, the joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of thy hands of a cunning workman, talking about the Lord's feet. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publish peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, and publish salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. That's Christ's feet. You'll find it again in Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. You'll find it in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. All in all, it is a great study of what his feet represents, of why she's anointing his feet, and why those feet are anointed twice. And of course, for you and for me, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, once you get saved, we are to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, all based on his feet. Credible study. Credible study. Now remember... Martha's serving, Lazarus is sitting, and in verse 3, our defining verse on Mary and her picture of our worship at his feet. So let's read verse 3 of chapter 12. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spiker, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, what you have here is a great illustration for us as we try to build our own relationship with Christ. And this will be the will of God that we talked about last week. Now, here comes another study. 
A key part of all this will be the word odor of the ointment and what it gives off. In the Bible, you're going to find that places that God will be associated with will always be connected to a pleasant smell or an odor. In the Old Testament, when they made the Old Testament sacrifices, because I know the blood of blues and gold couldn't take away sin, but it was a temporary thing that God required. The Bible says in Leviticus 26, 31, and Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, that when they burnt that altar, that sacrifice of something innocent, dying for something guilty, when that flesh burned, the Bible says that God smelled that savor of that burning, innocent flesh, and he was peased in his wrath toward that person. You find it in the New Testament sets in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where he says this, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we, under God, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ and them that are saved and them that perish. To one, we are the savor of death unto death and the other, the savor of life unto other and who is sufficient for these things. You know what he's saying? He's saying when Christ died on the cross, he was the fulfillment of those Old Testament sacrifices. And the Bible says that when Christ died on the cross, God smelt the savor of his son dying on that cross from the third to the ninth hour, paying the sin debt. And that sacrifice appeased God's wrath toward me and you. And right now, when we speak Christ, when we tell somebody the story of Christ, it reminds God of that sweet savor in the nostrils of God of his son dying on the cross, and it pleases God. It doesn't matter whether the person gets saved or the person rejects Christ. That's not the point, though God wants everybody to be saved. You want to triumph in all things in your Christian life? Do you want to have the triumph in all things? Then simply understand this. When you witness about Christ, when I preach the story of Christ, when you tell the story of Christ, no matter what the person does, God is pleased because it brings back the remembrance of the obedience of His Son and it is a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. The results are unimportant. I mean, they're important, but they're unimportant. I mean, I want to see people get saved, and I want to see people trust Christ. But at the end of the day, you know what? That's on you. Now, I'm not under any illusion we have people in this church who are probably not saved today. And I want you to get saved. I want you to go to heaven. I want you to be part of everything that God's doing. But at the end of the day, it's on you, man. I pray for you. I do anything to help you. But my life always triumphs. In everything. Because I want to please God. And when I tell somebody the story of Christ, it's a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. Now, here it comes. Maybe I ought to pray so some of you can get out of here. In the Song of Solomon, that whole book, we have a picture of our relationship with Christ, don't we? Have you ever looked at what the book of Psalm is all about? It's about pleasant smells. It's about trees. It's about fruit. It's about spikered. It's about ointments that gives off a pleasant aroma. 
He talks about cedar trees. Cedar is one of the most pleasant aromas that you'll ever smell. It's incredible. We like to put our clothes back in my day, probably not today, every family had a cedar chest. My sister Sharon's got ours. And every time as a kid I'd open that up, mom would put things in there, you could smell the aroma of cedar in it. Bible talks about roses. It talks about lilies. It talks about apple trees, pomegranates. It talks about a garden. It talks about camphor, spikered, pleasant fruit, garden of spices, sweet-smelling mirth. And in Psalms 45, 8, it says, All thy garments should smell of mirth, alloys, and cassia. Now, that's what our relationship with Christ really should be a sweet-smelling savor to God, a garden. Now, I know we know the story of Adam and Eve and all of that stuff, and that happened, what, four, five, six thousand years ago, and it's something in a distant past that we don't ever relate to us. But did you ever see the spiritual side of that? God had fellowship with Adam and Eve in a garden in a physical sense. That garden was pleasant. Oh, what it must have smelled like. You know, I've been to Hawaii years ago, and at night we'd go out on a ship to have dinner someplace, you know, and you could actually smell the fragrance coming off the plants and the flowers uh, back on shore with that nice, warm, tropical breeze. That garden must have been an incredible place. There was no curse yet. There wasn't anything to disrupt the smell that God had put in that beautiful garden. It was just Adam and Eve walking hand in hand through that garden, having fellowship with God and the beautiful smell of Eden, the garden of God. Now, you know, spiritually, that's what God wants with us today. We ought to live in the garden of Eden spiritually. We ought to have that relationship with Christ that is the most beautiful aroma that you could ever have. That God is pleasantly pleased by what we do and what we say, that we walk in fellowship just like Adam and Eve did in the cool of the day, except the difference is we don't hide from him. Let's face it, most of our walk with God and our fragrance is like going down to the city dump. There's no sweet smell of the fragrance of our relationship with God. My personal Garden of Eden. Me and him. You know, one time, years and years ago, I was in, we were in South Africa, a group of us, and we were preaching down there, doing discipleship with the churches. And one of the greatest experiences of my life is they took us way into the jungle, and they had a camp there that was completely surrounded, that you were locked in at night, you couldn't get out, nothing could get in. It had big high fences that you could see through, but it was like a, a, a place with all kinds of luxuries, beautiful little places to sleep, a nice restaurant, all kinds of nice things, right in the middle of the African jungle. And at night, when all the lights went out and everybody went to bed, you could hear all around you 
the wild animals of the jungles. You can hear the, 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 the lions. You can hear the, the, the elephants. You can hear, I mean, you can hear the hyenas. You can hear all of the animals out there that if you were out there at night, they would rip you apart. But you were safe within the compound. And the fragrance, the flowers, the fruit... And I've often thought to myself since that time, boy, you know what? That's exactly what my relationship with God should be. I'm in this beautiful compound, protected and safe. But out there in that world is everything growling that wants to destroy me. You know what God's people have done? They've opened the gate. They said, hey, I ain't worried about it. I'll go out there in the jungle. I ain't afraid. Yeah. Some lion over there picking his teeth with a toothpick. My garden of God. Me and him. God wants that for all of us. He wants us to have that kind of relationship where it's just like Adam and Eve in the garden. Except we don't hide from him. We don't run from him. I never want God to come down in fellowship and say to me what he said to Adam. Hey, Adam, where art thou? I want to be standing there waiting for him. So Mary, she'll do three things that will define our relationship and our worship with God. Now, verse 3 says the first thing she does, this is not one of the three, is she takes a pound of ointment or spikered, and then it says it was very costly. Then she does three things, and this is what I want to talk about her just for a few minutes here. First of all, she anoints his feet. Then she wipes his feet with her own hair. The Bible says the odor of that filled the house. Okay, you ready? <laughs> here we go. Remember, God's will versus God's plan. Now let's talk about the precious ointment first. The Bible makes a point here to tell us that it was very costly. And you may miss that, not think much about that, but I'm going to tell you right now that that is a great picture that the ministry and service for God and worship of God is going to cost us something. There's a price to be paid. If you're going to decide, I'll tell you right up front, if you're going to decide that you're going to have this relationship, you're going to build this garden, and you're going to be a sweet savor to the nostrils of God, and you're going to fulfill the calling and the purpose and the worship that God's called you, it's going to cost you something. You know why it's going to cost you something? Because it costs him something to give it to you. We're the kind of Christians that don't care that it cost him everything that it did for him to give us what we have We're just willing to not give him anything and not count the cost of what it's going to take. God's people will never count the cost of serving God. This is a price that has to be paid. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 30, tells us the story of a man who started to build a tower. Now that tower is another study in the Bible. goes all the way back through the book of Psalms. He started to build a tower, and he laid the foundation for that tower. But he never finished it. You know why? Because he got seeing what it was really going to cost to finish it. He never finished the tower. Now that tower is a picture of your relationship with Christ. Many of God's people, you laid the foundation. You got saved, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
But when you started to build, it just cost you too much, didn't it? It always amazes me as God's people will spend tens of thousands of dollars on what they want. But never pay the price for what he wants. Building something, whether it be a house, a room addition, a deck, anything you decide to do in your physical word, your wife says, we need to put on a deck. Your wife says, we need a new room. We need a new bathroom. We need this. We need that. We need windows. We need this. We need that. We need a new roof. We need new gutters. Yes, those are all the things that I had to do in the last two years. (laughs) not saying it didn't need to be done. But you know this, everything we're going to do in our house, around our house, you can count on three things. It'll take longer than you thought it would. It's going to be harder than you anticipated. And it's going to cost you more than you thought. The hidden cost of serving him. God's people are just willing to pay it. You see, you don't see the cost when you get saved, and that's a shame. When you get discipled, which you should be discipled and get taught in the Bible, then you realize the price that he was paid for you. Then you understand the price that you need to pay for him. But the problem is, most of God's people never get past that foundation stage. They want to spend every dime they have on new cars, new this, new that, new houses, do this, do that, new boat, new train, new plane, new jeep, everything you want. And never flinch a muscle about what they pay for what they want. But we'll never consider one time to pay anything for what he wants. That's God's people today. That's us. Amen. <laughs> That's us. So you pay the price. But the price will always have to be paid as you sit at his feet. Because that's the best place to pay it. Because at the end of the day, Revelation chapter 4, verse 10 says, when the Lord comes back, everything that we've ever gathered, we put at his feet anyhow. And I've always reasoned it this way. I don't have a problem with being at his feet and putting him at his feet now because that's where it's all going to go. For right now, for me, just looking at from the easy way, I won't have to haul it over there. So, in understanding worship... And understanding God's will versus God's plan. Her first act of worship will be Godward. Worshiping Him in spirit and truth. By anointing His feet, paying the price, not caring who's watching, not caring who's looking, focused on His feet, Spending the money to put on his feet. Now, the next thing she does, after putting the ointment on his feet, now she uses her own hair to wipe his feet. She could have got a towel. She could have got anything. She used her own hair. Now, I must must tell you right now, if you were there, this had to create quite a mess. 
And you know that God's people really don't want to get into that kind of mess with God. They want to keep it cleaner than that. Most of God's people, if they even got to the point where they were going to anoint his feet, they'd have a stack of tiles about 12 inches high. Hand sanitizer. A basin of water. Clean up the mess. Not Mary. She just sat at his feet. She took that. She broke it all over his feet. And then she took her hair. And she wiped his feet with her hair. You see, the first thing she did in her act of worship was Godward. The second aspect of her worship was inward. She got involved personally. She used her hair. A couple of things I want to say about that, but the first thing I want to say is this. She just used what she had in her worship to him. It's like Moses when he was back there before Pharaoh and Pharaoh, you know, he was scared of Pharaoh and he sent to the Lord and he says, he ain't going to listen to me. I'm scared to death. He ain't going to. And, and, and God says, I want, you to, I want you to be a great deliverer. He says, a great deliverer? He says, how am I going to do that? And Moses, you know what God said? He says, Moses, what do you got in your hand? He says, well, I got a stick. I'm a shepherd. And he says, well, then I'll just use that. That was the same stick that turned to snakes. That was the same staff that smote the water to blood. That was the same staff that he dipped into the Red Sea and it split. You know what you learn from that and learn from here? Your worship with God doesn't take a college education. Your worship with God doesn't take a seminary education. Your worship for God takes nothing more than your spirit and his truth and you just using what you have in your hand today. She just uses what she has to sit and learn the word. Now, she used her hair. Here we go. Here's another great study. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Church at Corinth are having a problem with the women. And you find there that in that story, without getting into it, that the Bible tells us that the glory of a woman is her hair. And it's a picture of her submissiveness to God. So here, what we have is Mary, picture of you and me, using her own hair, a picture of her submissiveness to her Lord, getting involved and wiping her feet, his feet with her hair. She went Godward, then it went inward. Now, here we go again. Back in Song of Solomon, you have Christ describing the bride and then the bride describing Christ. In chapter 5, verse 12, it says that Christ has the eyes of a dove. In chapter 1, verse 15, it says that the church is to have the eyes of a dove. Most people miss the connection, but the connection is very clear. His eyes are the eyes of the dove. My eyes, your eyes are the eyes of the dove. I should just simply say we ought to see things through his eyes. But chapter 4, Song of Psalm, verse 1 says, Behold, thou art fair, talking about the church, me and you, in our relationship with Christ. 
Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. There it is. Within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Now that doesn't look like much to anybody, but you know what that tells me? That tells me that you and I, typified by Mary, we ought to see what he sees through the submissiveness of our willingness to give and submit ourselves to God through our locks. Picture of our submissiveness to the Lord. And then it says goats. I had a friend of mine one time that was a pastor. We worked together for a while. And he took this passage out of here where it talks about she has teeth like whatever and and hair like goats. And and he did a composite. He was kind of an artist. And he come up with this monstrosity of this woman who had teeth like whatever, hair like goats and eyes like what it was, it was grotesque, it was like Freddy Krueger on a bad night. <laughs> and he was really proud of that. And I always thought to myself, boy, you know what? That's defining him. That guy couldn't have gotten the Bible and saw what I just gave you of his life dependent on it. All he could see about the woman in Song of Solomon was something for a comic strip. That's the way most God's people are. There's no garden of God in our lives. There's no real fellowship. There's no, in our worship, we, don't, we take the word and basically we can spell it. But there's no God word. We don't understand what that means, God word. You just got an example of what she did, God word. And then she took it inward. It's no wonder we got the problems we have. It's no wonder our lives are a mess, our marriage is a mess, our kids are a mess. It's no wonder that we're struggling like we're struggling. We're a bunch of God's people who got saved and we built the foundation, but we gave up because the cost too much. Seeing what God sees, dove's eyes, through making Christ Lord of our lives, through our submissiveness, hair, and then the goats, a sacrificial animal from Mount Gilead. You gotta study Mount Gilead to see why all those things are in here. Now, this is God's will in action. There's two parts to God's will, which is the same for all of us it's Godward, and then it's inward. Then the third thing that she does. Note now what she did, Godward and inward, and now it goes outward. And this will be God's plan. And the Bible says in verse 3 that once she went Godward and inward, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, because of one little thing that she did of going Godward and inward, now everybody smells it. Let me ask you a question. You have to answer this in your own heart. What do you smell like spiritually to other people? You know, our flesh naturally gives off in a very short time, a bad odor. It's caused a bacteria. And it's a thing where it gives off a bad smell. 
Now, we, we all try to mask that. And I've always, you know, I walk through stores while my kids are shopping or doing something, you know, and I'll, I've always just scanned the ladies' perfume thing. Man, they got everything over there. And it's all suggestive. I'm not saying in a bad way, but it's suggestive. You have night mist. Obsession. Total passion. My favorite was Holstein. Midnight under a Shanghai wharf. We come up with all these names that suggest love, passion. And with the idea, if I... If he smells my perfume, he's going to be obsessed with me. It's going to be like the night mist. It's going to be like the thing where, you know, two men and a woman on a mountaintop with flowers all around, and he sees her, she sees him, and they start leaping toward each other (laughs) and meet in the middle, but they didn't look down, and there's a cliff, and they both fall down and die. (laughs) Better the same way. We like to have the men's side. What do you got on? I'm a brute. Old Spice. British Sterling. It makes it sound like you're really somebody. And we do that because our flesh stinks. And we try to make it not stink. And it's a thing where you can mask it all you want. You know, I've never understood this. And please, this is just an observation. When a woman hits 80, they all buy their perfume at the same place. <laughs> they do. It's like they get, it gets sent from the government. <laughs> it, 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 it's one of those things. Now... You know, back in Exodus chapter 30, verses 35 and 37. Now, this is the kingdom of heaven, and it's a literal thing, and they're dealing with a little relationship. You know they're told there to make a special perfume to put on when they go in and minister before God. And it wasn't God at, you know, night mist or fragrance of the Paris or whatever. It was designed by God, and every one of those ingredients are a picture of something. All to mask a bad smell. Now, what do we do with our flesh? We wash. Every day, hopefully, you shower, bathe, or whatever, get soap, water, and you you wash your body. You keep the bacteria down. That's a good thing. We've all sat on planes next to people who never knew that. But you know, you have to wash your spiritual spirit too. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, it's by the washing of water by the word. You have to keep your spirit clean. And I'll tell you something, you can't mask a bad spiritual garbage dump smell in a Christian's life. 
back in Genesis chapter 27, another great study. Jacob is deceiving his father. And he's deceiving the father to get the blessing. Now there's Martha at action back in the Old Testament. He's doing something to get something spiritual that if he'd have just been patient and waited on God, he'd have got it anyhow. But he's deceiving his father in getting the blessing. So what does he do? He dresses up like his brother Isaac or Esau. And then he comes to his father and he does three things to deceive him. And when you learn these three things, you see these same three things in Christians' lives today to deceive everybody. He comes over there and the old man is kind of kind of feeble and blind and he's trying to deceive him and he leans forward and he talks to him and he, he touches him and he says, confused, he says, well, you have the voice, you have the hands of Esau, but you have the voice of Jacob. Then he got a little closer and he says, well, you sound like Jacob, but you smell like Esau. He put on one of his garments. And I look at that and I think to myself, there are three things that you can tell where somebody's at with the Lord by that thing right there. First of all, the voice. You listen to what they say. Second of all, the hands. You watch what they do. Thirdly, the smell. You take a good whiff. Does what they're doing really smell like it's of God? Jacob is a Martha. This will be God's plan in action. You become something for him, God's will, and then you take it outward, and that's God's plan. You give off a pleasant aroma and people will want it too. Or you stink to high heavens, as the saying is, and that will be the third heaven. Now, you know, when you, when you, when you look at this, you see that that's what John chapter 4, verse 24 is talking about. Real biblical worship. Learning God's Word will develop you into three areas. First, it'll be God's Word at His feet, paying a costly price to be there, being still, being quiet, and just waiting on the Lord. Then the second aspect of your worship, it'll go inward, and you'll get involved to the point where you both now smell alike. You can't tell one smell from the other fulfilling God's will for your life. Then it goes outward. That's God's plan for your life. Now your relationship with God will impact everybody in using the words here in the house. It always starts in your home, in your own house, with the wife and the husband and then the kids and then anybody you come into contact with. You know, there's been many, many times, and I keep my mouth shut because it's none of my business, there's many, many times I'd like to ask so many of God's people that I have to deal with or see, can you actually smell what you are trying to sell? And I would like to say, spiritually speaking, you need to go sniff your armpits. Guys are always doing that, you know. Now, no. Not everybody was happy about this. 
I'm happy about it. Hopefully you are. But our story, not everybody was. And it's like today too. Some things never change. Then saith one of his disciples, oh, you might guess it was Judas, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and held the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my bearing has she kept this. Now you see, there it is again. Verse 5, was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? That's Martha. That's doing. Verse 7, then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my bearing has she kept this. That's being. That's Mary. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Now Judas is not happy. He looks at her sitting at the feet and worshiping as a waste of time and money. Notice I told you last week that both Martha and Judas both refer to Christ as master. To him, it's just a real mess of ointment, something that somebody else is going to have to clean up, something that has ruined the smell of probably his supper. And it's a thing where uh, it, just, it's, it fills the house. Now you want to mark this down. People who are in Martha and Judas's category today as Christians will always be against those in Mary's category. They, just like Martha, can never see the big picture of what God is doing. And the smell gives them the way. And sometimes it's a smell of the world. Sometimes it's a smell of, of a pride. Sometimes it's a smell of attacking other Christians. Sometimes it's a smell of gluttony. Sometimes it's a smell of indifference. Sometimes it's a smell of jealousy. The smell of the world will always give them away. Now, quickly, the last thing I want to say is this. Look at verse 5. This cost 300 pence. Now, years ago, I was preaching in a Bible conference with uh, a guy by the name of Dan Schmidt. He's Chris Schmidt's brother. And Dan was a, is a very good preacher. Uh, I always like to listen to Dan, as Chris is a very good preacher. And uh, I always like to listen to Dan. And we were someplace in a Bible conference together, and it was his night to preach. And he preached on Mary and Martha. And I've never forgotten what he said. And I've used it for years and years and years. And I don't, I've never really told him how much I got out of that, how much I appreciated it. But I've never forgot it. And he really came down to the end of his thing, talking about Mary and what she had done with the very costly box of ointment. He said, it has been said that this cost was worth 300 pence. And back in the day, 300 pence was actually a year's wages for somebody. And then he said this. She spent a year of her wages to make him smell good for just a moment of time. And I thought to myself, what an incredible concept. She took a year of her labors to make him smell good for a moment of time. And you know, her unlimited spending, what will be the limit of our spiritual budget? When do we say enough is enough? When do we say the cost is too great? 
When do we say, I need what I need more than God, you need what you need? When will the priorities even themselves out? How much of a building cost will we be willing to pay? Will we have unlimited spending and give God whatever he wants? Or a cheapskate that comes after what we want? But how much of the building cost are we willing to absorb for the building? We laid the foundation. We're in the process of building a tower, your own spiritual walk with God. How much cost are you willing to put into it? You laid the foundation. Now it's time to finish the temple. You know, back in Ezra and Nehemiah, when they go back to rebuild Jerusalem, they had the same problem. Back in Ezra and Nehemiah, they're all fired up and excited about rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple, but there it was when you get to some of the other books uh, that the minor prophets write now, after 14 years, they still haven't finished it. They're actually taking all the things, that materials that was for God's building, and they're building their own homes with it. That's God's people. We laid a foundation, but we just don't want to count the cost to finish the building. Last Thursday night, somebody asked a question out of Exodus, and it was a very good question about the, the offerings and the colors that they were bringing to build that original tabernacle. And I, I showed them and showed you that it was all based on somebody that was giving basically out of the willingness of their heart. We have to come to the place if you're ever going to get where you want to be. And my goal for all of you is to be a Mary. You're going to have to come to the place in your life where you are willing, out of the willingness of your heart, not only to lay the foundation, but to put aside the cost and pay whatever it has to pay to get that temple finished. Because that's what it's going to take. I can give you the building blocks. I can give you the principles. I can give you the books. I can stand up here on Sunday morning, Thursday night, Bible Institute, and I can give you all the building blocks, the principles, and all those things. The thing that I cannot give you is a desire to build. That has to be with you based on your worship. Godward, inward, and outward. Now next week, if you have somebody who's not saved, <clears throat> next week will be the week to bring them. Next week is going to be one of the most unique, incredible, fantastic lessons on salvation that you have never heard. Right out of John chapter 11. And it's an incredible thing. And if you're here, next, if you're here today and you're not saved, you can either see me now and we'll show you how to get saved. But if you're here next week, you will have the opportunity to understand in an incredible way why you need to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank